Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, we began a month-long series devoted to Georgia's Latino communities. Our conversations will focus on a deeper understanding and knowledge of the various Latino communities here in the state. And as with most of our segments, it's all tied to quality of life, education, health and wellness, workforce development, housing affordability. Of course, that's key. Just just to name a few. We'll examine the state's changing demographic trends, support for farm workers in rural Georgia, and we'll profile local organizations, civic and community leaders. And today we kick it off with a creative hip hop artist named Victor Mariachi. They want us to go back to Mexico. I said, okay, let me take you back then. Yo, I want to go to Mexico. I may even have Victor spit some bars. We shall see. All that's coming up. But first, this news. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is extending a temporary moratorium on redeveloping the Atlanta Medical Center location. Now, AMC is scheduled to close at the end of the month. Wellstar Health System has announced the AMC emergency room will close next Friday and is already redirecting patients to other facilities. Dickens made the move yesterday after the city council began considering approving the mayor's executive order. This now would extend the moratorium for six months. The council is also considering forming a study group on what to do with the 25-acre site. In other news, Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker is responding to a Daily Beast report that he paid for a girlfriend's abortion in 2009. As a candidate, Walker says he opposes abortion in all cases. WAB politics reporter Sam Greenglass has more. On Fox News, Walker called the report a lie. I never asked anyone to get an abortion. I never paid for an abortion, and it's a lie. And I'm going to continue to fight. You know, I tell you, that's what they want. They want this seat. But right now, they've energized me even more. WABE has not independently confirmed the account. The Daily Beast granted the woman anonymity to protect her privacy. The report says she provided a copy of a check from Walker, a receipt from an abortion clinic, and a get well card he signed. In May, WABE asked Walker to describe his stance on abortion. There's no, there's no exception in my mind. Like I said, I believe in life. So and no I do it. No for... exception. I believe in life. Okay, that's all. On Monday night, Walker's son tweeted, quote, I'm done, along with a string of messages criticizing his father. Walker has a history of misleading the public. He has exaggerated his academic and business records and has several additional children he didn't disclose to the public or reportedly to his campaign. Polls show Walker in a tight race with Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. On Monday night, Warnock reiterated his support for abortion rights. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In other news, Fulton County's district attorney is trying to obtain more search warrants. That's as she continues to investigate where the former president, Donald Trump, and his allies illegally tried to interfere with the 2020 election results here in Georgia. Now, that revelation came yesterday in a court order filed by Fulton Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney. It wasn't immediately clear who the targets of the search warrants are or whether any have been executed. Now, to obtain a search warrant, prosecutors must convince a judge they have probable cause that a crime occurred at the location where authorities want to actually do the search. The DA, Fonnie Willis, special grand jury investigation has sought testimony from several political heavyweights, with many trying to fight the subpoenas. She has indicated the jury could wrap up by the end of the year. Georgia Power's parent company is failing to meet its stated climate goals, according to a new report by the Sierra Club, as we hear from Emily Jones. The report looks at pledges power companies have made to reduce their climate warming emissions and what steps they've actually taken. Georgia Power's parent, Southern Company, scores an F. 
The company has pledged to cut emissions in half by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. But it's second in the country for reliance on coal past 2030 and seventh for reliance on gas. The Sierra Club says Southern can't reach net zero without action from its subsidiaries, Georgia Power and utilities in Alabama and Mississippi. In a public hearing just last week, Georgia Power CEO Chris Womack was asked if the utility is committed to the net zero target. That's a Southern company goal, man. That's not a Georgia Power goal. Neither company responded to a request for comment. Emily Jones, WABE News. Now, it's not often we have a traffic report, but here goes. A Georgia roadway that is already one of the most congested in the country, yes, country, is about to get even worse. Georgia's Department of Transportation says starting this weekend, the north side perimeter will shrink from four lanes to three on I-285 between Roswell Road and Ashford Dunwoody Road, which means I will not be up there. Officials expect the closure to last eight months. I'm just reading the facts. GDOT spokesman Kyle Collins says the headaches, good word, will extend well beyond the construction zones. It's going to be impactful not only to 285, uh, any highway that connects to it is going to see higher rates of travel. So that's why we're encouraging carpooling, alternate commute options, and different things that folks may have not thought about previously or considered. (laughs) Well, hold on to this. Collins says those who tough it out during the closures... Whew, could see an extra hour added to their daily commute. Sorry about that. And finally, as you heard on NPR. More than just country, music legend Loretta Lynn has died. She was 90 years old. And a statement from Lynn's family reads, quote, Our precious mom, Loretta Lynn, passed away peacefully this morning, October 4th, in her sleep at home at her beloved ranch in Hurricane Mills, close quote. Now, growing up in the cold town of Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, Lynn was a second of eight children, a career that spans six decades as a singer, songwriter, and musician. Loretta Lynn is considered a pioneer, trailblazing a path for so many women in the music industry. And Lynn garnered nearly every award along the way, influencing so many. And I have to tell you, our own Jim Burris is a little sad today. He's a big Loretta Lynn fan. He'll have more along with uh, on Loretta Lynn, along with All Things Considered, later today. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Introduce ya, welcome to the USA, the acronym for accolades. This is the Ruta, the seeds that was planted, benefiting from the frutas, from USAs to hoorahs. This is how we move now. Yo, going from the bottom up, a lot of that was bottled up is going off like a rocket launch, ready to erupt and crush. They want to paint us with the, the song is Estamos Aqui, and it's from hip hop artist Victor Mariachi. You'll hear more from him in just a moment. And the song was also the theme for this year's Estamos Aqui Fiesta, presented by the Latino Community Fund here in Georgia. As we begin our series, this throughout this October devoted to covering Georgia's Latino communities. And as I said earlier, we're going to focus on a deeper understanding and knowledge of the various Latino communities in the state. And we're going to cover everything as much as we can, like we always do, education, health and wellness, workforce development, housing, of course. We'll profile local organizations, civic and community leaders, as well as creatives like my man, Victor, we'll get to in a moment. But we begin by welcoming the Latino Community Fund Executive Director and Founder. She's been on this program before, Gigi Pedraza. Also, Dr. Roxanne Chicas. She's an Assistant Professor of Research Track in the Neil Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University. And Victor is over there. Welcome to you all. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
so happy to be here, Rose. You and I, Gigi, I want to start with you because you and I have had a lot of conversations. And as we were planning this series, you said, Rose, one of the things I want to start with, I want to, if possible, paint a snapshot for your listeners about when we talk about Hispanic and Latino communities, who we're talking about. And I said, okay, so that's where we're going to start. Who are we talking about here? <laughs> we are talking about over 1.1 million people currently living, working, studying, loving uh, in Georgia. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a community where 90% of all of our children under 18 years old are American citizens. So oftentimes people think, you know, all Latinos in Georgia are like me, immigrants. Mm -hmm. Well, no, actually the majority of Latinos in Georgia under 18, 90% are American citizens. Mm -hmm. And when we think about adults, we estimate that around half of us are either citizens mm -hmm. uh, or permanent legal residents and around, you know, a third of the community, around 300,000 are undocumented folks. So it's a very diverse community coming from 21 countries and one territory uh, with heritage, right, mm -hmm. from, from these countries speaking diverse languages. Very mm -hmm. few people know that in, in Latin America there are over 400 languages spoken, so it's not just the Spanish. I did not know that. <laughs> See, I learned something already in the first five minutes. 400. Yes, over mm -hmm. 400. Many of them indigenous languages. Mm -hmm. um, many of our countries have different official languages. Uh, Latinos in Georgia mm -hmm. uh, also are people from Brazil, with heritage from Brazil that speak Portuguese, right? Mm -hmm. And so there is a difference. Sometimes we use the terms Hispanic, right? Hispanic Heritage Month, the official name. Uh, but more recently, there are also other labels used to d define this community. Latino, Latinx, Latine. Well, and let's talk about that for a moment. And also, uh, Dr. Chi, Cousin Victor, you, you all can chime in on that because I think it's important because I've had people send me emails that talk about, well, you should use this term, Rose, or you should use this term, or don't use Latinx, Rose, and don't use this. And, and for someone who wants to be very respectful of any population, any community, um, do, do you all find yourself getting bogged down in those conversations or do you just not focus on that? Dr. Chicas? Yeah, so, it, you know, in academia, we use the term Latinx quite a bit um, because the younger generations seems to like that term better. Mm -hmm. They identify with it better because it's uh, gender inclusive, right? All gotcha. gender inclusive. Mm -hmm. But yeah, some of our older uh, Latinos um, prefer the term Hispanic mm -hmm. uh, or I work with farm workers. Most of them identify as Hispanic, mm -hmm. which is fine. I think that all those terms, it's okay to use all of those terms and to identify any way that you would like. And I don't think that any of the terms are offens offensive, mm -hmm. especially like you said, Latinx, a lot, there's a lot of pushback mm -hmm. on that term. And I think that it being a gender inclusive uh, term, it's a reflection that in the Latino community, we still have a lot of work to do to be mm. uh, more gender inclusive and, and to be more accepting mm. of this community. And we're gonna talk about that later in the month as well. Victor, what about you? Do you get hung up on labels or do you, you know, you say, look, huh. this is who I, you're from the hip hop community, yeah. so I know y'all y'all are very defined and clear. Yeah, I was gonna say that. I mean, me coming from the hip hop like background, I guess, or being in that culture, like we usually flip words, you know, so it's like we don't really don't take I personally don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have a problem with if people are like, hey, can you refer to me as this term? Because, you know, I want to be considered other people. But for me personally, I, you know, I just use <laughs> Latino, Hispanic, gotcha. uh, Mexican. I, I use all. Whatever works for you. Yeah. Gigi, I want to go back to you because according to the Atlanta Regional Commission, the Hispanic population, the word they use in the 11 county metro area increased by what they say was a robust 31 percent between 2010 and 2020. That's not surprising to you, I take it. Right, not surprising. In fact, Georgia, the Latino population growth in Georgia has outpaced the national growth nationally. We grew uh, around 21, 23%. Uh, and this has been a trend in Georgia. So we are growing, but the majority of the growth is kids born here, which is also really interesting and important to recognize, right? These are uh, Georgia-born or U.S.-born Latinos. Why do you think Georgia is seeing this population growth? Do you have any, any idea? I think that what happens is that the growth 
has been trending exponentially mm-hmm. since the late 1980s. So, and, and, and so this is a reflection just of this trend. Actually, mm-hmm. the growth has slowed a little bit if you consider the last 30 years in Georgia. So we continue growing because we were a community that was relatively small, mm-hmm. right? And we talk about percentages. We are not necessarily talking about numbers. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this because, and let's back up for our listeners. I just have a question already. Someone, wants, someone says, well, I don't know about this organization. Okay, well, let's start there. Uh, I, I remember and you've been on this program many times and I remember you talking about you wanted to get into the nonprofit space you wanted to work with an organization so tell our listeners what you all do over the Latino Community Fund great um, so the Latino Community Fund it's a nonprofit organization and we do both direct services we do a lot of civic participation know your rights health and well-being programs but then we also have sort of a membership business-to-business type of model in Mm -hmm. which we operate as a quarterback, if you wish, to community organizations already doing work in the community that are Latino, Latinx, Latina-led across the state either in the education space, advocacy space, health and well-being space, culture. Uh, we have 39 members, all Latino-led, Latino-serving, Latino-governed across the state, working in partnership with students and workers and families. What services do you all see t- people t- need to request the most or have questions regarding how they can get service? Since the pandemic, of course, health uh, has been top of mind. Mm. Um, worker protections. Really? are huge. Uh, folks not necessarily know their rights as human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, civil rights are something new. Uh, and then when we come from different countries, like I come from Peru, mm-hmm. the system is quite different. And so there may be some challenges understanding how to navigate the system. Uh, civic participation, we see huge interest from young adults in the younger communities to be bold and make their voices heard. You know, these are communities that oftentimes have suffered. What is it to be subject of laws and policies that Mm -hmm. were passed uh, without necessarily the parents having a voice because they were permanent legal residents or unable to vote. Mm -hmm. So it is a little bit of everything. Let's let's focus for a moment on on health and wellness. I'm going to get to Dr. Chicas in a moment. But since the pandemic, since 2020, Gigi, what have you noticed within the communities you all are working with? How has COVID-19 impacted the Latino community here in Georgia? It has impacted and continues to impact and will continue to impact because mm-hmm. the pandemic is, is not over. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see you know, overwhelmingly in 2020, I think we were very much affected just because we are overrepresented in uh, employment that is frontline, mm-hmm. uh, essential workers, uh, but also in the health Uh, in clinical space, as well as in the cleaning space, janitorial space. People Mm. forget that, you know, hospitals and clinics need to be clean. Oftentimes it's our folks. Nobody was paying attention to them. Mm. Also because we don't have access to healthcare, uh, quality healthcare or insurance. There was a recent uh, report from Georgia University that noted that Latinas in Georgia, half of us don't have insurance or access to insurance. Half. Half of Latinas, right? Which is double the national amount. Dr. Chick, as you heard what Gigi had to say, you work in the health and wellness space. That is probably not lost on you. No, um, it's something that as a researcher and, and as a nurse at, at Emory University is something that we're focusing on, on trying to bring health care uh, to the Latino community. Uh, because uh, from the pandemic, we know that the Latino community, immigrant community, is essential to the state, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that the federal government said that many of the work that Latino immigrants do or Latinos do um, is essential to the infrastructure of the United States, right? But yet they lack a lot of uh, health care access. They lack uh, labor protections. And so I think that's something that Georgia has a lot to work on. Did you encounter folks who were having trouble either getting access to the vaccine or or, or any other barriers? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, as an example of the great work that the Latino Community Fund did, when the vaccine rollout came, you know, there were these huge signs on 285 that said, you know, make an appointment to mm-hmm. get your vaccine. But where? Where do you make that appointment, right? If you didn't have the knowledge of, of, of where to look for that, 
you couldn't do it. And even when there was a, a website posted, right, for many Latino immigrants, it was difficult to access those websites because they ask you, you know, for emails and for ID, mm. uh, which really kind of uh, creates a barrier for Latino immigrants that may not have an ID. Or even if they do have an ID, they just, they're, they don't know how to access that. And the Latino Community Fund, what they did was said, you know what, you don't need an appointment. You don't need to show your ID. We're going to be in your community. Come get your vaccine. Come get tested. Uh, we're here for you. And that really opened the door for a lot of Latino immigrants to get access to testing and COVID vaccines. Well, that leads me to this next question. That, and all of you can chime in on this because, Gigi, you, we've had these conversations. When it comes to disseminating information, when it comes to getting information out to various communities, and often when we talk about the Latino communities, first thing people say is, well, is there, do you, do you have someone, in, is there a language barrier? Are you, are you said organization making sure someone is representative of this community or this community? How would you assess in, in terms of social services, this is through your lens, that are accessible for folks in the Latino community that may need them? Is it a easy, is it hard to navigate? It's Yes, it is very difficult to navigate because it's not only language, it's also literacy level, but it's also the words in the language that we choose, um, right, to, to promote and, and how understanding people are of perhaps cultural nuances. And, and Ross, I want to take a moment yeah, to, to, to also recognize that yeah. this is not only for the Latino community, mm -hmm. this is for every community. Because to Dr. Chica's point, Yes, for example, in 2020, the website was there. But if you are a senior, if you don't know how to use a computer, it doesn't matter if you're Latino, if you are white, if you are black, if you live in metro or not. If you're you not connected, still, you're not connected. You still had a challenge accessing. Mm -hmm. So the lens that we use at the Latino Community Fund with, with our great team is that we identify who are the most vulnerable vulnerable populations. And we define that as folks that may have diversity of documentation status, uh, folks that may have limitations in mobility and transportation, whereas that is mobility issues or mm -hmm. just lack of you know, a car because you cannot drive or because we don't have enough money, mm -hmm. right, to, to have a vehicle. Uh, if you have dependents uh, and if you are learning English, whatever language that you speak, or maybe you have other type of challenges, right, mm -hmm. speaking English. So we try to, to define, to design for that. Dr. Chickas, Gigi's talking about this goes beyond just a language barrier in, in whether whatever quality of life tentacle we're talking about. When it comes to health and wellness, are you seeing that there is more attention or there's a lot more to do in terms of how we communicate with the specific community we're talking about now, which is the Latino population? Yeah. Increase, good, bad, better? Getting there? Yes, we have a lot of work to do, and uh, we, we're, you know, we're trying to mobilize uh, with that. Um, I think something that... Is, is crucial to try to reach to the Latino community is really to be engaged with community organizations that have boots on the ground that are in the community that they've built rapport. And that's one way that we can reach the community and also improve their health literacy access to, because there are clinics out there mm -hmm. that provide affordable health care uh, for, uh, for people to access, but they don't know where they are, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what's so great about community organizations, that so they can you know be that bridge. Gigi, the, the community organizations that you all work with, and we discovered this a lot during the, when the pandemic first started because we seemed like we had organizations on every other day, which was fine because we had to address this. Are you seeing a, a more collaborative, cohesive effort, or are there still some challenges even within specific community groups in terms of how we do this? Because let's be clear, it happens in all groups, whether it's civil rights groups or what have you. In every group, there tends to be there's always some tension with, okay, do we do it this way? Do we do it that way? Have yeah. You, and I, if so, how do you work through that? Yeah, the silver lining, and I hate to use that, but I don't know. I'm an English learner. I don't know what other phrase to use. That's <laughs> the, the silver lining of the pandemic to me was that it showed us how much we could do together. Right, and it's not only community organizations and our members, but local leaders. The incredible amount uh, of work done in organizing mutual aid funds that mm -hmm. were created that still are in place. Uh, was just 
incredibly inspiring. And so I can tell you that within four days of the, you know, the governor closing um, the state, four groups came together to say we're not mm-hmm. closing doors and this is mm-hmm. how we're going to work together. Two weeks later, it was 21 groups, wow. right? A month later, it was 36 groups. So there is an incredible amount of collaboration. There are differences, mm-hmm. no question. Uh, and we can always do better, yes. But the one thing that's absolutely clear to me is how much we care for each other and how much we have led and continue to do to address and be self-sufficient, address our own problems, mm-hmm. and step into the advocacy space and, and be bold and say, what is it that we need? And we're going to talk more about that. Before we go to break, I'm going to bring up uh, one, a song from Victor. But Victor, I want to ask you, in your household, um, it's you, your mom, who else? And, and my sister and my niece. Okay, so are you surrounded by all yeah, women, Victor? All you have, <laughs> Victor, you have no say so in the house, do you? <laughs> no, I got my hands are full. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll continue on in just a moment. You're listening to Closer Look. Maybe cruising in Santa Ana and my Charlie Brown Cause the whole town was getting down to the sound of the funk Chicano power was a talk Tracing the bodies of our leaders, uh Written in chalk, are you surprised? That when cocaine was on the rise We were out there slanging and banging all day and through the night Bumping Zap and Roger, probably rotting and something proper But it's a bother, cause our kids won't have their fathers But we're the flowers, cause they tried to bury me But they didn't see that You got some good beats there, Victor yeah. <laughs> who, who, who does your beats, man? That was, uh a guy by the name of Sam Wise. He's yeah. a he's a producer here in Atlanta, and uh, that's actually going to be on my album that's coming out soon. So, oh, we we, we, we breaking walls. music over here? Yeah, <laughs> it's already out, but yeah. This is a special edition of Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Today we're kicking off a month long series examining what we call the quality of life for Georgia's Latino community. And I'm joined by Latino Community Fund Executive Director and Founder Gigi Pedraza, Gigi Pedraza, and Dr. Roxanne Chicas, an Associate Professor of Research Track in the Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing at University. Say that a lot. And my man over there, Victor Mariachi, thank you all for joining us once again. Gigi, I want to come back to you for a moment because when we talk about those quality of life issues and in the services that you all are providing and I asked you earlier and you said health care and you said also accessing some policies when we talked earlier and I think it's full disclosure we should be very clear we wanted to make sure that folks understood this is just not all about immigration issues when we talk about the Latino community but in the political space sometimes it becomes that yeah, it's it's an important issue for mm-hmm. Georgians. Georgia mm-hmm. Latino community is very different from, for example, Latinos in New York or Latinos in California. Uh, and so for Georgia, uh, immigration, it is an important issue, as well as good wages, as well as the economy, as well as access to health care, because we are human beings mm-hmm. like everyone else. And what we all want is just a space and an environment where we could pursue opportunities to the best of our abilities just right? like everybody that's, else that's 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 all we want we just want the chance dr chicas i want to focus with on you for a moment um where are your parents from el salvador i'm yeah. from el salvador too yeah. yeah yeah how did y'all end up here if you can share yeah so um my mom actually came to the united states um and left me in el salvador when i was six months old because there was a civil war she left mm-hmm. me with my grandmother and then when I was four years old, she returned to El Salvador to, um, uh, to bring me to the United States because she wanted, you know, she felt that we needed to be together. Mm-hmm. And so she brought me to the United States. I came um, through the southern border very much like many other people that you see on TV. And we crossed the border and lived uh, in Texas for a few months and then uh, moved to Georgia. So I started kindergarten here in Georgia. So I am educated by the Georgia public system. And <laughs> I think they did a great job. <laughs> you remember, you vividly remember that journey? You know, I remember when we crossed the uh, Rio uh, Grande and my mom had me on her um, on her shoulders. And I also know that she tells me that during the journey, and I was four years old and she would have to carry me a lot. And people would try to help her um, throughout the journey to carry me. And she wouldn't allow anyone to carry me because she was so scared that someone might kidnap me. Uh, So she, and, and, um, and so she, she never allowed anyone to like touch me or anything. She always held on to me very closely. Wow. You work in a space also where you are very active in, in the quality of life for farm workers in, in, in southern, mostly southern part of Georgia or rural parts of Georgia, I guess. Uh, South Georgia and Florida. Yes. How'd you get into that space? Well, 
Um, interesting, like, uh, you know, I was undocumented until I was 18 years old, mm-hmm. and then I got temporary protected status. And so I knew that uh, when I went into the PhD program at Emory School of Nursing, I wanted to work with the Latino population, but I wasn't sure exactly in what area. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that the dean of the School of Nursing, Linda McCauley, works with farm workers. And I, she became my mentor, my advisor for the PhD program, and that's how I get, got into working with the agricultural community, which I absolutely love because I identify with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, half of them are undocumented. Um, and so I could have been one of those workers. My mom could have been one of those workers as well. So I, I, it's, a, it's a special community to me. How do you do, or can you, for our listeners, define the plight of farm workers in in rural and in, in southern part, and Georgia and Florida. Yeah, they're I, right. Everybody's life is different, but if you had to paint a snapshot, what would you say? I would say that they're right in our backyard. They're our neighbors, and they are uh, picking the f- uh, fruits and vegetables that we eat every day, yet they lack uh, protections. They have very little for themselves. I mean, to, to think that, especially during the pandemic, um, we had to do um, food pantries mm-hmm. for farm workers. Can you believe that? Farm workers who pick the, you know, the food that we eat, they are having to stand in food lines to get access to food for themselves. I, I just think that's awful. And we have a lot of work to do for this community and, and really value the work that they, they do for us. Are most of these under a certain uh, classification in terms of well, work per- permits or visas? I don't know the, the whole yeah. language there. but So, um, you know, about 50 to 70 percent of farm workers are undocumented and then you have another percentage that are h2a workers 50 to 70 percent yes are undocumented so you have an entire industry who is reliant on the labor force of undocumented people so everyone everyone in the united states who eats has benefited from the labor of undocumented labor from farm workers what Uh, kind of services do you all try to help them receive or or, or, or that you all can give? Yeah, so the School of Nursing at Emory University has for about the last 20 years had a a farm worker program where every summer they go and provide health screening uh, to farm workers, uh, especially H2A workers, Mm -hmm. um, to provide screenings, oral care, you know, uh, foot care. Uh, We check for diabetes, um, blood pressure, everything that we can. And it's, you know, several it's, it's a huge apparatus that keeps um, slightly growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that's, and that's something that the School of Nursing is trying to work to make it something that we can be there full time f- uh, around uh, the whole year to help these farm workers to get them access to health care because it's, they need it. So if you all aren't around to help and if there is a, a serious medical issue or condition, often will they just wait or, or what's the... So what ends up happening is uh, some of them will wait until they are extremely sick and they'll end up like in the ER. Um, others will uh, go back to their country of origin. Um, and, and so, and there's no really no tracking mechanism for them to, to know what's going on. This is very much anecdotally from what we see on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of need there. You know, there are some uh, clinics, um, migrant clinics, but they only reach about 15% of the uh, farm workers. The rest are, are not being reached. And sometimes these farm workers, the first time they've ever had access to health care has been through the farm worker health program. Gigi. And this also happens in other regions because there are poultry plants and there are carpet manufacturing companies that also rely on undocumented uh, folks and import labor. Uh, oftentimes people think about farm workers and they think, oh, Cesar Chavez, Flor- uh, California. People don't realize that Georgia is the second largest state in the country relying on imported labor, meaning H-way workers coming from Mexico and Central America, many of them indigenous that cannot even communicate in Spanish. Can you repeat that again, Gigi? Yes. Hmm. So Georgia is the second state in the entire country with the highest number of H-2A workers, which means workers that are brought from Mexico or Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, to pick vegetables, fruits, so Mm -hmm. that they can feed us. Second largest number in the entire country. We have talked about segments here where there, and this is not all of the 
areas, but there were, and I believe the FBI had a sting, there were some where these workers were being mistreated, not being paid fair wages. Do you see, is that common? Obviously, if the FBI had to have a sting, but more yeah. common than what we know. It's common. And to think that these workers were H-2A workers who are under, you're supposed to be under federal oversight, right? A program that's under federal oversight, that this is happening, I really, I really think uh, is a reflection on how the program needs to be uh, revamped uh, mm -hmm. to, to create better protections for these workers. Yeah, it's, it's, we have a team in South Florida. We have nine local Latino leaders working uh, in South Georgia, two teams, one based in Tifton and one based in Valdosta. And it is almost every month that we receive reports of mistreatment. Some of them we had to connect with uh, trafficking uh, protection organizations, mm -hmm. with attorneys. Uh, so it is common. And what folks sometimes fail to recognize is that Blooming Onion, right, the FBI stint, the federal stint, was able to track abuse for 10 years. So it's not like the workers were abused for one year. This is a consistent pattern over 10, 15 years that happened. So it is horrifying. And construction workers in Metro Atlanta, you we've, know, we've oftentimes, that, yeah. you know, face the same. Domestic workers, right? Janitorial workers, um, undocumented business owners, all of them face, you know, challenges that are affecting their rights to live and work and collect their compensation like they should, because they should be protected. We have some data here from the UCLA Latin Policy and Politics Institute that says almost half of Latinos in Georgia live in poverty or low-income conditions, the highest among all race and ethnicity groups. Georgia Latinos are almost as likely to live below the poverty line as U.S. Latinos, 21% versus 22% but are more likely to live in low-income conditions. So Gigi, when we talk about housing affordability, and goodness, we've had so many conversations about housing affordability here on this program. It, obviously, if it affects the urban area of Atlanta and blacks and, and low-incomes, and it, here we're seeing what this report says, and often poverty and housing conditions go hand in hand. They do, and uh, and what we do, it's we try to help each other as much as, as, much as we can, right? So we see uh, families that get with other families to share homes. Uh, we see folks, uh, you know, welcoming uh, relatives and family members mm -hmm. uh, in their space, uh, but there are very few avenues mm -hmm. for folks to seek protection. And so we see this in coastal Georgia, in Pooler, Right, right at South Savannah, we see this mm -hmm. in Beaufort Highway. We see this uh, in Northwest, Northeast Georgia. We see this in South Georgia. We see this everywhere. Uh, so it is a reality, and it is folks just that like to take advantage of people mm -hmm. that are here only to have a better chance of life, what we all want. Mm -hmm. When we come back, we'll continue, but we'll also we'll bring in hip-hop artist Victor Mariachi and his passion for music, and there's a lot more to talk about. You're listening to Closer Look. I want to go to Mexico, dancing in a festival, wearing amber necklaces and everything's incredible. Going to the market for the fresh fruits and vegetables. Grandmama with her hands held, Mary blessing you. Yo, I'm not looking to hear myself, I just want to free myself. Looking at my feet for help, the deep details to keep it real. From Hanukkahs in Santa Monica to Ramadans in Yugoslavia. Back to Yucatan's Mexico, the stepping stone on ancient moats. Totem poles, electric flows, going through my veins and poles when I feel at home. Eleven million aliens in a nation created innovation, breaking probation. Hold me, embrace it like a home that is gated, full of modelo cases. Call me the Raymond, get in the feria. Better get a steady job like a boss at the Marriott, taking over areas, feel the hysteria. Chivas America. And closer look continues here from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You know, Victor Mariachi has a lot of musical influences, including Tupac, cool, Nas, cool, Eminem, he cool, most deaf. Cool. Kendrick Lamar, he cool. And this got me. Marvin Gaye. Mm. Way cool. <laughs> yeah. Victor, you said you, you said you had a sheltered childhood, having lived everywhere from Guerrero, is it Guerrero? Guerrero. To Alberta, Canada. Yeah. And then you said, you know, I've experienced both the best and the worst that life has to offer. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, the conditions when I was living in Mexico was definitely like a culture shock for me. Um, but I was born here, so. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, for being in, like, the hottest places, kind of living in, like, oh, like two-bedroom apartment in, like, uh, in Chilpancingo, Guerrero, which is where my parents are from. Mm -hmm. And then going to Canada and seeing that, like, you know, living in a three-story house at the same time. Yeah. So it's like you get to see the dichotomy of that, of... Tell me about your mom, because I saw your mom when you were performing at the Fiesta. It was the first time she saw you performing. She was snapping pictures. She, she didn't put the camera down, snapping pictures every <laughs> two. Tell me about your mom. Yo, uh, yeah, my mom, uh, she's amazing. She's basically the, the inspiration for everything that I do, especially music. Um, her story is very, um, well, she's, she came from Mexico as well, and um, she she's the youngest of her family so she came here by herself not knowing the language kind of you know hustled work and uh met my father and then uh, i was born in phoenix mm -hmm. and yeah since then she's never stopped hustling she, she turned into a spiritual healer like at, when uh, when she went to mexico for a bit so now she's selling still like cacao seeds and coffee and stuff mm -hmm. like that so um how much of your childhood how much of your heritage is in your music uh i think a lot i mean it's inevitable i think um in the beginning i kind of wanted to be like my inspirations like you know tupac Nas, and eminem mm -hmm. but their stories weren't my stories so right. um as i got older and kind of learned more about where i come from and the things that uh topics that should be talked about that i weren't weren't being talked about in hip-hop i i started uh, to incorporate more and more like what what topics uh well, f f I come from a blue-collar family, mm -hmm. so all my family's construction workers. Um, like my tios, they're really literally on the roof. Mm -hmm. And then I had um, my mom was a housekeeper, and then she cleaned houses. Um, so I try to make that, put it, incorporate it with the music as well and, you know, talk about how proud I am of them, like mm -hmm. my pride for being where I come from. So I also try to make it fun. I don't try to just make it all political or socially conscious, so I I. I, I don't know. I make it fun. I talk about parties as well. So Remember the first uh, rap song you heard? Uh, that's tough because I grew up in uh, like MTV was playing like they would play videos. Trying to make me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I didn't really listen to the radio. So like it would just be music videos that they would be playing. But I think uh, Delinquent Inhabits, which is like a group, uh, Control Machete, which is like a, a, a Mexican rap group. Mm -hmm. And then during that time, I think M was like really going off Eminem. Like it was like the late 90s. I was like nine, eight years old. So what, what? About Cypress Hill? And Cypress Hill, too. I yeah. like Cypress Hill. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you. So what what the, what made you say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try my hand at this. I'm going to write some lyrics. You remember the first rap song you wrote? Can you, uh, can you, uh, can you say it or? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I remember, but I do remember I uploaded it on MySpace. Was my first. Ooh, song. MySpace. <laughs> yeah, I had. I didn't even use a mic. I used like a. Well, I did use a mic, but those webcam mics. I did the whole song there and I yeah. uploaded it there. But it was. I don't remember. What would your mom say when you said, "You know what? I'm, I'm gonna do this rap thing." Uh, I think it took a while for them to accept because. Um, I think that many parents like when you have your son, like your ch child being born here you have like high aspirations like they want them to go to college mm -hmm. and get an education and stuff so for them I think it took them a while to really understand that I was really passionate about it it was something that I couldn't you know it was something that I couldn't really change it was my mm -hmm. passion it was my drive my mission how earlier when we started this conversation we were talking about labels and, and all of that and Victor I'm curious in, in your music and when you're in the hip-hop scene are, are folks asking you to maybe focus more hey if you focus more on you know your your childhood what it's like you know be a mexican-american that would be something different and are you, you know in terms of trying to break into the mainstream because i'll be honest with you victor i like your music i don't listen to some of this new stuff out here because i don't know what they're saying but that's just me being auntie rose mm -hmm. but it's changed the the folks you mentioned that's who i grew up with pop obviously chuck d Nas. i mean i'm the old school mm -hmm. queen latifah mc mm -hmm. light you know poor righteous teachers all of that grandmaster mm -hmm. flash your generation is like in between my generation and this generation of, of hip hop. Yeah, uh, it's tough, but I, I don't know. I, I think an artist, if they stay true to themselves, um, you don't really fall into that or kind of get. So you're deviated. not gonna change up. You're not gonna change your beats to some of this 
stuff. I will <laughs> I will experiment. I, yeah. I don't mind. Yeah, because you got to broaden your horizons. One thing about hip hop is that you got to listen to the youth. I mean, I mean hip hop. Do a, we have to listen to the youth, Victor? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you, if you want to know what what the youth and what they're going through, I think the music has a lot to I do. I think with that's it. fair. Yeah, I think so, that's fair. Yeah, you got to stay with the times a little. There, bit. There's a saying that says, "The older I get, the younger my teachers are." Uh, okay, well, y'all, yeah. y'all put me in my place. I understand. <laughs> Victor, this is the this is the career path you want, though. You you, I mean, you're in it. It's not what you want; it's what you're doing. Yeah, I've been doing most of like half of my life. So, 15 yeah. years, I've been writing rhymes, and yeah, you write your own rhymes. Yeah, I, I write everything, which is key because we know some folks who <laughs> shall remain nameless don't write their own rhyme. I'm just saying. No, I take very much pride in that. I think that that's what that's one of the credentials as a rapper is that you have to write your rhymes. You well, have to. if you want to be credible. Yeah. I want to stick with Victor's generation for a moment because also in this uh, US, UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Institute, it says that Latinos in Georgia are very young. With the median age of 26, the Latino population is the youngest of all major racial groups and significantly younger than Georgians, 36. That's a that's a 10-year gap. What do you make of that, Gigi? It's a great opportunity. What does that mean? It's a great opportunity for all of us. Think about contributions, think about purchasing power, think about education. Uh, if you think about uh, or you consider that the way Georgia is growing in terms of trade and the top four countries that Georgia is trading with mm-hmm. are most of them countries mm-hmm. with languages other than English. You have a younger population that's already bicultural and, and very likely uh, bilingual. Uh, it's also a huge voting block. Uh, rose. Uh, think about the growth of the Latino mm-hmm. electorate, right? Not not long ago, we were around 2%. Now we're close to 5%. And I dare to say we estimate that we are more than 5% simply because not all Latinos self-identify as Latino or Hispanic in the voter file. So it's a, uh, uh, we could determine the election, quite frankly. Do you, well, well, let me ask you all this. Do you feel like in what you're hearing, whether it's here in Georgia or Nationally, do you hear candidates, regardless of what political affiliation, party, do you feel that the Latino community is often just sort of a throw-in when they talk about, oh, yeah, we want to do something for X community? Or do you feel that you are getting these issues out and you're hearing issues that impact the Latino community from candidates? Dr. Chicas, what do you think? Um, yeah, there's a little bit of everything that what you just said, right? There During election cycles, yes, they politicians tend to start focusing more on uh, the Latino community. Um, as a nurse, I just wanted to go back a little bit to, you know, you talking about this um, large um, community of Latinos here and younger. Mm-hmm. And f- as a nurse and assistant prof- professor at the School of Nursing, for me, um, I think it's an opportunity. The School of Nursing is actually an initiative to try to get more uh, Latino students to look at the nursing profession to become nurses. There's a nursing shortage, we know. Yes, a nursing shortage, but to diversify the nursing workforce. Mm -hmm. And the School of Nursing just received like $11.5 million uh, from HRSA workforce development uh, funds. And so we are going to be intentional to try to diversify the workforce because when you have you know nurses who are latino who are african-american who are you know diverse you know the the quality of life health care is improved and we have better health outcomes and it's representative of the diverse patients right that come seeking medical health and we're going to have a, another segment later in the month as we focus on that uh, Gigi, with this being a, an election year are you are you all seeing more folks coming saying hey i want to make sure i'm engaged i want to make sure i'm understanding you know what these candidates are saying i guess civic engage voter engagement is that something that you're seeing in the community yes we 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 do see a lot of interest in fact that we, we were just looking at the numbers of folks um clicking on links looking for more information on candidates and historically i can tell you that every week we have for example around 200 people looking at their um their local candidates mm-hmm. and you know what are the jobs that these candidates do last week we had almost 700. So as the election gets closer, people get interested. Um, I think because they also want to make sure that they understand who and what they are voting for and if if it is going to impact their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Candidates oftentimes, you know, parties have big platforms. They fail to be relevant to the to the, you know, regular voter. Victor, I want to get back to you for a moment because I had a question I didn't get to ask you in terms of the the arts community the creative arts community here is there a, a growing population of, of 
of Latino artists in the hip hop space or any other space, country, classical? What are we seeing out there? Yeah, very much so. Um, right now, they actually, there's a, a gallery, uh, a main gallery, uh, Nuestra Creación. They have like uh, different artists that have their, their stuff that they're showcasing right now. So Where is this? At Mint Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as uh, like the hip hop community, I'm seeing more. Uh, it's we're, I, I like to think that I'm a little bit of a pioneer in the sense that in the underground scene because right. there's not a lot of us. But uh, yeah, like I think people are asking for it. They, they really um, want to see more of us performing and, and making music. But it's growing. It's growing? It's, as, When's that album coming out? Uh, that's tough, but I'm thinking about maybe November, sometime mm-hmm. in November, yeah. All right, now don't forget us, Victor, when you get all famous. Like, I don't know that Rose Scott. I don't know how. <laughs> Appreciate Never it. that. Never that. I got you. Um, when you are writing, because I love to ask artists this, what is your process? Do you sit down, put it all in pen, or you just keep it up? You know, M says he keeps it up in his head, and he just goes to the mic. And uh, Jay, Jay does. Jay-Z. Jay does. Jay-Z does that, too. Yeah. You do that? Uh no I I'm I'm old school I like to pen and paper still uh but usually it's very hectic there's not really it's not organized at all um sometimes I'm just like I I feel something coming and then I just have to write it down and it's it's more about the beat I have to listen to the instrumental mm-hmm. and that kind of speaks to me and I it's it's a cooper it's a cooperation between my subconscious and and my conscious of trying to come up with something. You penned Estamos Aquí, correct? Yes, I wrote. How, how long did it take you to come up with that? Uh, that, I uh, I wrote one version first, and then I wrote a second one. So it took me like um, two days, I think. But I wrote I wrote most of it like in thirty minutes because mm-hmm. I try to keep that energy uh, from intuition. I don't want to get too involved and get in the way of the process of. And Gigi, as we wrap up, why was that so important for this year's fest, fiesta that you all had at Dole Fourth Ward Park? The last few. In Estamos Aquí, yeah, if people don't yeah. know, it means. Estamos Aquí means we are, we are here. here. We're here. We are here and we have been here for a long time and we will continue to be here. And it was important because the last few years have been so difficult. Uh, from hateful rhetoric to the pandemic to lack of opportunities and to immigrant legislation. Uh, and we needed to create space to celebrate who we are. The diversity of Latinidad and the countries and the languages and the experiences and the background. And so the fact that we could be together and just celebrate that we are here in spite of everything, right, uh, was really important. And it was fantastic. Uh, everyone was so happy to be with each other. And we will continue to do that. All right. And we have many more segments coming up this month on Closer Look. Gigi Pedraza, Latino Community Fund Executive Director, also Dr. Roxana Chicas, an associate assistant professor, research track in the Neil Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory University, Victor, Mar- Victor Mariachi, hip hop artist, creative. Thank you all for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Gracias. Gracias. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair, our engineer. Kevin Rinker, he's back. We missed you, Kevin. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, so send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Estamos aquí. To all residents, say hablamos a ti. We ain't going nowhere. Estamos aquí. Papa, we ain't going nowhere. Estamos aquí. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.